But we're going to spend time this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you are new to our church, you may come from a different church tradition. What we typically do in our church is we preach through books of the Bible. Sometimes we do special series on topics, but we tend to preach through books of the Bible. And the good thing about that is when you're in difficult passages, you can just say, well, I didn't, I didn't pick the passage for today. It kind of picked itself. Um, today we're in a passage that's not difficult, but it relates to giving. And sometimes when people are new to church, they're like, oh, I, I heard that churches just talk about giving all the time. And lo and behold, it's true. Well, we don't talk about giving all the time, but we do talk about giving when it comes up in the Bible. And so we've been preaching chapter by chapter through 2 Corinthians, which is one of the epistles of Paul. And in the first part of chapter 8, he talks about generosity. Then he talks about the role of ministers in the church in the last part of chapter 8. And then he comes back to the theme of generosity in in chapter 9. So this is sort of like a two-part mini-series on generosity that we're going to be preaching on today and we did a couple weeks ago that are all found within the context of 2 Corinthians. So hopefully that kind of puts perspective on things. Now, to to start off, I want to just tell you a quick story, a couple quick stories. Uh, I've I've owned several houses. We've we've moved here and there over the last 20, 25 years. And recently when I was purchasing a house a couple years back, you know, we all know that the prices of houses in Windsor and Essex have gone quite quite high, right? It's it's not cheap to buy a house. You pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a house. So we negotiated a deal several hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy this property. We sold our other house, um, paid a little bit more than, than asking price, but still a, a price that I thought was fair to both parties. And uh, a few days prior to closing, I was on the property and there was a particular item that the owner was thinking about leaving behind and I wanted to buy it. And I noticed that it had the original sticker price on it, the original price tag, and it was like $29.99, brand new. So I said, oh, would you take 20 bucks for it? He's like, sure, I'll take 20 bucks for it. Now keep in mind, I'm paying him hundreds of thousands of dollars for this property. So I give him the 20 bucks and a few minutes later, he comes back to me and he's like, you know, my wife's not real happy about this. She wants 30 bucks for it. And I was quite taken back by that because I'm thinking, okay, we're adults. I'm paying you hundreds of thousands of dollars for the property, and you're concerned about 10 bucks? Now, if you compare that kind of a mindset, you know, a person that goes around looking for every, every dollar they can possibly get out of you. I've also met people that are incredibly generous. I had a friend once, he would call me about once a year, and he would say, you know, hey, I have some extra money. Do you know of anybody I could help with tuition? You know, I have several thousands of dollars. I want to help someone with tuition. Now, this is the kind of mindset that is just such a blessing. Someone that's actually looking to give their money away to the tune of thousands of dollars versus someone that is willing to actually come to you to try to get another five or 10 bucks out of you. And yet we see this in culture and sometimes even within the church. There are some people that just have a bent toward generosity and there's others that they're just cheapskates. And the Bible, of course, sides with the generous. The Bible invites, and that is a 
meaningful word, by the way, not so much commands, but invites. It's an invitation. Invites each of us to so generously. And our attitude should be that of cheerfulness. We should be looking for opportunities to so generously into Christian ministry. So rather than seeing generosity or giving as a drag, it's like, oh, another command. Can hardly get the rest down that I've heard this week or read this week in my Bible. Now I got another thing I got to add to the list of things I got to do to impress God. Rather than seeing generosity as a drag or a command, the mature believer learns to see it as a blessing and an opportunity. Think about that. It's a blessing and an opportunity. To adopt the mindset, I want to be generous. Maybe I need to call people. Hey, how can I help someone with their tuition? Or how can I help someone with their groceries? I, I want to actually give away the resources that God has given to me. This is the essence of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a call to cheerful generosity. And in this passage, we're going to be called to sow. You know the imagery of sowing, you scatter seeds so that you can reap a crop. We're called to sow so that we might reap a great harvest. You sow a few seeds, you get a small harvest. You sow a lot of seeds, you get a great harvest. So what Paul does is he's instructing this early church, and by extension instructing us, is he starts out with what I'm going to call the need for an unneeded reminder. The need for an unneeded reminder. Not everyone needs to be reminded of these things, Paul teaches us, but maybe a few do. Other times, we just preach it as a reminder. Even if nobody needs it, we just preach it as a reminder because it's true. This particular church was already committed to generosity. We learned that in our study of chapter 8. As are so many of you, you're already committed to generosity. You don't need to be told this. But nevertheless, Paul writes to ensure that the commitment remains and continues. So let's pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. He says, now it is superfluous for me, in other words, kind of unnecessary for me, to write to you about the ministry for the saints. What he's talking about there is they, they had identified a need in some other churches, and Christians are known as saints. So they'd identified a need in other churches, and they'd, they'd called upon other churches to help meet the needs of some of these destitute Christians. So he says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal, meaning your zeal to give, has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come to me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated. To say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So this is an interesting way of approaching a church about generosity, Paul essentially comes to them and says, 
I know you're generous. I know you've already committed to giving. I've bragged about you to others. Others have been blessed by your example. But just in case there's some forgetfulness among you, I want to remind you of the commitments that you've made. And I'm going to send a couple of brothers to minister to you and to make sure that the collection is taken so that we can meet the needs of these destitute believers. Paul doesn't want to waste his time telling them to do what they're already doing. But there is always a chance of backsliding in every area of life. And we all know this, right? I mean, there can be an area of your life, if you had a time in your life when your prayer life is just red hot, you're like, man, I finally got it down, Lord. I've been working on this for years. Now my prayer life is red hot. You put a check mark in your you know, mental box of things that Christians should do. And then several months later, you're like, you know what, my, my prayer life isn't that red hot anymore. Or you're, you're into the word every day and you're systematic and you're deliberate and you're disciplined and man, you got it going on. And you're like, yes, for years I've been working at consistent Bible reading and now, now I've got it down. And then time goes by and you start to let down your guard and you slip away and all of a sudden you're not reading your Bible much more than once a week or something like that. So this is why even if we're doing well in an area of Christian living, we still need reminders because there's always the potential to backslide. So when we teach one another, we need to understand, and even as you're listening to my voice this morning preach to you, the goal of preaching is not always to correct. Sometimes we just reinforce the obvious. Maybe you've experienced this at work where your boss comes to you and says, hey, I just want to let you know you're doing a great job. In fact, I've told many people about how great of a job you're doing. You're a wonderful employee. And then he ends with this. And by the way, keep it up. Now, you might say, well, just a sec. Why would you tell me to keep it up when you've just said I'm already doing it? Because everyone understands that even someone who is living successfully working hard, for example, still at times needs a reminder to, to keep it up. And so this church here is receiving that kind of a message from Paul. It's like, hey, you guys are doing great. You're a great example, but keep it up. Don't slack off. That's the tone here. You're doing it, so keep doing it. And then he puts this little thing in there. My reputation is on the line, by the way, because I've already bragged about you to so many. Keep up your commitments. Now, I think that this is probably a timely truth given the circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, during this period of lockdown, I kind of came into it strong and felt kind of invincible and I felt like prayed for. And then right around the time I started to tell people how well I was doing, I started to feel kind of glum and a bit depressed and a bit of despair set in and you know, it's like you, you start to lose your joy and then you start to feel the flesh take over. You start to get frustrated and angry and so forth and so on. I'm a mature believer. I'm your pastor. But I, I go through times like this in my own life too. We all do. And there's a message here specific to the area of giving, but I think we can apply it to all of life. Even though you might be doing well in a particular area, keep it up. Keep it up. If you're doing well in the area of generosity and giving, keep it up. 
Don't back down. So this is a needed, unneeded reminder that the church needed to be offered and that we, by extension, need to be offered. Keep serving others. Keep giving. Keep blessing people. Well done. Now, what is it that motivates this kind of ministry? So up to this point, it's kind of like a this is what you should do kind of sermon. But let's talk for a moment about what motivates generosity. Well, the next portion of this text helps us to see the connection between the heart and the blessing that God wants to give to us. So this is something, this is a message that you have to absorb with more than your ears and mind. This is a message that has to ultimately flow from your heart from love for the Lord. Before I read a few more verses for you, let me just give you a couple obvious illustrations. Let's suppose that this coming spring, you decide to plant a garden. And I know many of you like to garden. Most people like to have a, at least a few plants around their house. Maybe you have a pretty big garden in your backyard. And you go out and you decide, okay, I'm going to plant carrots, for example, and tomatoes and green beans and jalapeno peppers. Well, we all know that the crop, the yield at the end of the summer is directly tied to the number of plants we plant or seeds we sow. So if I want a lot of carrots, I have to sow a lot of seeds. If I want a lot of tomatoes, I have to sow a lot of seeds or plant a lot of plants. This is basic math. If you want abundance, you have to sow generously. Relationally, this is true as well. If you want a lot of friends, you have to talk to a lot of people. You ever meet the odd person at times who is like, I don't have any friends. But you never talk to anybody. You're just home all the time. You never invite people to your home. You know, you spend too much time watching television and sending text messages or whatever it might be. Like if you want an expansive friend network, you have to work at it. You have to sow generously if you want to reap generously. Likewise, when it comes to money, the Bible says that when we sow generously, we gain generously. We're going to see that in the text. If a person only works for an hour a day, or two hours a day, unless they're exceedingly blessed, their income is going to be about this big. But if you're a hardworking person and you commit yourself to eight, 10, sometimes 12-hour days, especially in your younger years, you will eventually get ahead. So there's often a direct parallel between how much time and energy you invested at work and your financial status. You know, if you're 25, 28 years old, and you're still only working 10 hours a week, you're never going to own a house, you know, unless someone bequeaths a great inheritance to you. So direct parallel, you scatter a few seeds, you get only a few carrots in return. You talk to only a few people, you have only a few friends in return. You work only a few hours, you're only going to have a small amount of money in the bank. That's the point, and you get it. I know you get it. So look what it says in verse 6. The point is this. 
I love when the Bible just tells us clearly what it is we're supposed to take home. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Does the Bible ever lie? The Bible records lies, Satan's lies, for example. But the Bible doesn't lie. God doesn't lie to us. And this is a clear-cut precept from God's word. There is a direct correlation between generosity and blessing. When you sow abundantly, you reap bountifully. Again, a direct correlation between giving and receiving, including the portion. Notice the portion words. Sparingly, that's a portion word. Versus bountifully, that's a portion word. The, the Bible says it, and we know anecdotally it's true. I have met many, many cheapskates in my life, and they are often broke. They, they, they save all their money, but they never seem to have it. Or maybe they have a lot of financial resources in the bank, but they're certainly broke emotionally. They're not happy. They're not joyful. They're not relationally connected. They're not trustworthy people. You see, the word stingy and cheerful don't mix. You cannot be both stingy and cheerful. If you're stingy, you're usually uptight. You're distrustful. You're always worried about getting ripped off, getting top dollar. And your friend circle is going to be very, very small. And maybe you know people like this too. They have very high incomes, but they never seem to be able to get ahead. Why? Because when it comes to finances and generosity, it doesn't just boil down to good accounting and Excel spreadsheets and good budgeting. There is a divine dimension to Christian generosity. God blesses those that are generous. So verse seven, speaking of the heart, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly uh, or under compulsion. Who's watching me now? For God loves a cheerful giver. This is an act of worship. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Who is the source of sufficiency and grace and generosity? God. When God is pleased with your generosity that flows from a cheerful heart, the God of all sufficiency is more than able to sufficiently provide for you. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. This is, these are reminders to us from other parts of Scripture that God is rich. God is generous. God has more than enough resources to distribute freely, to provide for the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Now, by the way, if you're a student of Scripture, um, a little detail here that might be helpful. This is actually not talking about your weekly tithe. So this is not talking about your regular givings to the church. Paul here is specifically speaking to the church about offerings. So in biblical theology, there's kind of three basic categories of giving. A little sidebar. There's tithing, which is the, the 10% that you give to the work of the ministry. 
Uh, some Christians believe that it's strictly an Old Testament commandment. I don't think that's true. I think that it's a pattern that is spoken positively pre-Old Testament, under the Old Testament, and post-Old Testament. So we have, for example, Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. Now that's within the part of the Bible we call the Old Testament, but it's actually prior to the Old Covenant. It's a pattern that is presented in a positive way. Then under the Old Covenant, tithing is mandated. And then in Matthew 23, while Jesus had not yet fully inaugurated the New Covenant, when Jesus is calling out the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, he says, you know, you're the kind of guys that tithe, but you negate the, neglect the weightier matters of the law and justice. I wish you'd do the former and the latter. It's essentially how I would summarize the teaching there in Matthew 23, 23. So what we see then is that prior to the Old Covenant, it's presented in a positive way. Under the Old Covenant, it's presented as a positive way. And from the words of Jesus, it's presented as a positive way. So while we would be hard-pressed to say it's a command for the New Testament believer, it's easy for us to say it's always presented throughout the entire scripture as a positive pattern for how we should live our lives. Now, the Old Covenant people, and we see this being reflected under the New Covenant, 2 Corinthians, were also at times called to give offerings. Offerings is when you give over and above to special projects. Oh, we hear, hear, hear that the church in Jerusalem is struggling. Let's all collect money over and above and send it. And then almsgiving, that's the third form of giving, is where we, as we're walking through the streets or just interacting with people during the, during the week, we give money or resources to the poor. So three categories of giving. If you budget and plan your giving according to scripture, it's always good to have a bucket for your tithe, a bucket for offerings, and a bucket for almsgiving. Different ways of giving as part of a generous lifestyle. But this particular passage just happens to be focusing in on offerings, not tithing, not almsgiving, but offerings. And yet I think the principle of giving applies to all three forms of giving. God wants us to give cheerfully, not out of compulsion, but out of a cheerful heart, whether it's tithing offerings or alms. And we do this because we know that God is the ultimate provider. God loves two things here. He loves it when we're cheerful, and he loves it when we give. And the best case scenario is when both of those things come together. Now, how do you tell if you're callous to this teaching? Well, you could probably determine how willing you are to obey this or unwilling you are to obey this by what emphasis you put on the words of this text. So I have noticed over the years that when Christians hear God loves a cheerful giver, there's two different ways that two different kinds of Christian people hear that. One group hears it this way. Oh, God only wants me to give what makes me cheerful. And frankly, I don't get too cheerful about giving very much, so I'm not going to give very much. So that's one way to interpret it. Oh, I'm only going to give what makes me cheerful. So in other words, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to be generous to others. 
unless God sort of cheers me up and makes me want to, because I don't want to give under compulsion. And then there's others, which I think is the more biblical response, is that they understand it this way. I give cheerfully. I give cheerfully. This is the thrust of this passage. God wants us not to give what makes us cheerful, but he wants us to give dot, 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 cheerfully. If you look at verse 8, as I've already mentioned, there's an emphasis on the sufficiency of God. Do you actually believe that God is all-sufficient? Just think about that for a minute. I know it sounds true. I've read that in the Bible before. But when I say, do you believe, what I mean is, do you not, just, not just do I believe it in my mind, but do I actually incarnationally, practically, applicably believe that God is all-sufficient? Hmm. That's where we really have to pause and try to be honest with ourselves. Now, if you are not bent in the direction of generosity, it's a struggle for you. And you're trying to figure out why. Lord, I want to be generous, but I'm not. What is it in my mind that hinders me from generosity? Well, I can tell you, because the Bible indicates it. You don't really believe in the sufficiency of God. You hold back from giving because you're not sure how that's going to affect you. You think, man, if I give, what if I can't pay my mortgage this month? What if something comes up? What if the car breaks down and I got a big bill to pay. I, I, I got to save. It's prudent to save. I'm responsible for my family. Do you actually believe that God is all-sufficient? Well, God is all-sufficient. And if you desire to be generous, then what you need to understand is when you desire to be generous and to give cheerfully, the God who holds all things, look at the text, distributes freely has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So let me just challenge your thinking on this a little bit. Oftentimes we say, ask and you shall receive. And that's true. It's in the Bible. Ask and you shall receive. But in this text, there's another dimension being added to this. What if we made the habit in our Christian lives of asking in order that we might give more, believing that then we will receive from God? In other words, if you don't have enough, keep it, and then ask God to give you more so that you can give it away. In other words, say to the Lord, Lord, I actually want to be generous, but frankly, I, I'm, I'm poor, so would you bless me to be a conduit of your generosity into a needy world? So Lord, I want you to increase my income. I can kind of just pay the bills right now. I want you to increase my income so that I can be more generous with others. Because I know you have it all, Lord. So a lot of cheap, stingy people in the world, but I want to be generous. So... Bless me in order that I might be a blessing to others. Isn't that, wouldn't that be a cool way for more of us to live our lives? Rather than, well, bless me with more 
and I'll keep 90% of that more, which I don't currently need, but it's going to be great to have. And then I'll give a little bit away. What if our mindset was, Lord, no, increase my capacity. You're an abundant God. You're an all-sufficient God. Increase my income, increase my capacity in order that I might bless the world around me as an expression of the gospel and the generosity of God. Give me more so that I might give more. I mean, why wouldn't God want you, to borrow the words from the text, to abound in every good work? Why wouldn't he? Sometimes we make the mistake of simply asking people to give what they already have instead of asking people to ask God to give them more so that they might give it away. Think of it this way. If all of your funds and all of your possessions are in fact God's and you're just stewarded them, and God chooses to use his people as conduits of grace and generosity into the world, why would God not want to abundantly bless his people so that we can abundantly bless others? Why would he not? Why would God say, hey, I want you to abound in every good work, but I'm not going to bless you so that you can do that? Now, the reason why God doesn't bless some believers with more than they already have is because they haven't proven themselves worthy of managing what they already have. Maybe God has blessed you in the past and you just didn't see it that way. You just saw it as your income and you continue to hold it. You continue to increase your income and your holdings and you don't give it away. So God hasn't blessed you with more because he's like, okay, well, I'm done with you. You're clearly not wanting to be a conduit of generosity. So I'll just, I'll bless other people. I'll bless the guy that's willing to make the phone call and say, hey, I'm looking for people to support with their school tuition. I'm going to bless that guy because I know he's going to give it away. I'm not going to bless you. I've increased your income five times in your life and you just keep holding on to it all. Why would I bless you? But God does want to bless those that want to abound in every good work. Now, our relationship with God is kind of like this. If I said to you, hey, um, right after the service, I got some stuff to do in my office, but there's a person out in the parking lot that needs some money. So I got this money here, and would you mind just kind of running it out to them? Now, I would trust you to run it out to them and give them the money, but can you imagine if halfway out there, you're like, you know what? I got this money. I didn't, I didn't have this yesterday. I didn't have it this morning. I'm just going to keep it to myself. We'd all say, oh, man, what a slimy person. <laughs> What a, what a stingy person. This money was intended for someone else. Folks, how much of the money that God has given to us was actually intended for someone else? But we've kept it. Now, some of you have taken the money and you've immediately passed it on. You've been responsible as a biblical steward. But other people have been given money by God to give away and they've kept it for themselves. Shame on them. We are conduits of God's grace and mercy and all-sufficiency into a needy world. Look what it says in verses 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing 
and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's interesting. Because earlier we were told, hey, the person that sows generously will reap generously. So we might think, okay, I got to find some more means within my budget to give away. Well, not really. Because here we're told that if we desire to sow abundantly, the one who actually makes the seeds will give you sufficient seed to sow generously. So if you want to be generous, God will enable you to be generous. Isn't that a blessing? If if you want to give more, ask God and he will give you more so that you can give more. And then it says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So you'll be enriched in every way. When you're, a, when you're a generous person, it blesses you across the board. It blesses your sense of peace. It blesses your walk with the Lord. It blesses your relationship with other, others. It expands your heart for people. It blesses you in every way. God will enrich your life in all ways for enriching others with gifts of generosity. I think some of the um, teaching that I received when I was growing up was, was good and helpful in the area of financial management, but I'm not sure this was taught to me with the kind of clarity that I want to communicate to you today. And that is that it's not just about trying to find space in the money that we already have to give that is God's high call for the believer, but rather it's about asking God to give so that we can give. This is different than the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which says, you know, ask God for money so that your life can be more awesome. That's the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Ask God to give you more so that you can buy, you know, the jet, the speedboat, the third Harley, whatever it might be. Not that, but ask God to give so that you can give. Ask God, commit to the Lord. I, I want to sow generously. So Lord, you're the one that provides the seed. So I need a little more seed because I want to give generously to other people. And what is the ultimate goal of generosity? Generosity's goal is God's glory. It's God's glory. When we bless others, it produces this response. Second part of verse 11, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Notice there's a two-pronged goal to generosity, to both meet the needs of others and to bring glory to God. This is where non-Christian, non-God-glorifying soup kitchens and charities fall flat in their face. Because while they might meet the needs of people, they don't necessarily bring glory to God. So when we do charitable works, we always do it in Jesus' name. We always give God the cred. We always point people to God. One of the things I love about the Ministry of Compassion Canada, for example, which we've been a partner with for a long time. I love this story. I've told it many times in our church. Compassion Canada is essentially an almsgiving ministry where there's opportunities to give to disadvantaged children around the world. And many years ago, I was told by one of the, uh, at the time, the Canadian director of Compassion Canada that there's lots of child sponsorship programs around the world. And they were approached by another child sponsorship program that said, hey, why don't we merge our two ministries 
so that we can meet the needs of more people around the world. And there was some discussion about that. But somewhere along the, uh, along the, the line of the conversation, the, the other ministry said, but we, we kind of have more of a secular approach and we, we're going to kind of have to be a little more cloak and dagger about the whole Christian thing if we're going to meet more needs, more children's needs around the world. And Compassion's like, yeah, no. So they actually added to their slogan, in Jesus' name. You'll see it, compassion, in Jesus' name. They, they decided we're going to be more explicit about it. Why? Because the end goal of generosity is not filling stomachs. The end goal of generosity is not rescuing children from poverty. The end goal of generosity is not building houses for people to live in. The end goal is both meeting needs and positioning people to give thanks to God at the same time. And if you can't do both, don't bother. So Christian ministry is always done explicitly in Jesus' name. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. We have people ask us from time to time to help in the life of our church, and we do that all the time. We don't broadcast that very often, but it happens all the time. It's happened this week where we've had the opportunity to meet the tangible needs of people, but we always bring the gospel to bear. And if the person's like, you know, we just want grocery cards or we just want you to help us, but we're not interested in listening to your, you know, your message about Jesus or coming to church, we're going to be long-suffering with them, but at some point we're going to say, yeah, enough's enough. Because our goal is not just to fill your stomach. Our goal is to help you to get to a point in your life where you are giving glory to God. Now, there are many charities in our world. And one thing you'll notice about many charities or charitable people that don't ultimately understand this vertical mindset of giving glory to God is they give things away, but they always want the pat on the back for it. Notice that? They want the article in the Windsor Star, you know, holding the big goofy plastic check, you know, those giant checks they do. They're standing there for the photo op with all this money they've given away. And it's usually really not that much money compared to what we would do as a church. But it's this check. You know, they want the cred for it, the big check. Or someone comes forward and says, I'm a philanthropist and you know, I, just, I just love to serve the people of Windsor-Essex. So I would like to pay for you know, the new wing on the hospital or the new wing on the university. But just one little thing, I'd, I'd like my name on the building. This is not Christian charity. This is marketing. This is pat on the back. This is seeking the applause of men. This is not Christian charity. Christian benevolence always points people to the true giver. If the Christian donates to the wing of the hospital, he or she wants a sign on it that says dedicated to the glory of God or something like that to point people not to his or her benevolence, but to point people to God, the God who ultimately provides. Verse 13 reads, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Notice that generosity and confession of the gospel are tied together here, almost as if they're one and the same. 
and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God. This is a biblical understanding of giving. People will praise and glorify God when they receive physical help, financial help given to them in Jesus' name for the cause of Christ. And a Christian just this past week or the week before last was literally in tears because another believer had met their physical needs. Praising God that this believer was used to meet their needs. Praise God for that. Over the course of our lives, we will receive blessings from many sources. But the ultimate source of blessing is the Lord. And to confess the gospel is to be generous. And to be generous is to confess the gospel. So we want to be a generous church. Not for our honor and glory. Not so that we can pay our staff more, build bigger buildings, put ourselves on the map. We're not into that. That's disgusting. That's carnal. We want God to be glorified. We want God to be glorified with our speech and our minds and our hearts and with our wallets. So give God the glory for the privilege of being able to serve him in this way. And ask God, be bold, be daring. Ask God to supply for you so that you might more meaningfully supply to others. So that Not so that you might be recognized, but so that God's name might be lifted high. This is what it means to be a vertical Christian, to be focused on God's glory, God's honor, the God who ultimately provides and is all sufficient for us. 